John chapter 18. As we enter into our study this this morning, uh, we are reminded of that one long night, the night that Jesus was betrayed, the night that he was taken and arrested. and taken to two very illegal trials. One before Annas, who had been the high priest, and then to Caiaphas, who was the high priest. And in between all of that, there was a visit with Herod. But as we get into our text today in verse 28, Jesus is now being taken to Pontius Pilate. And it begins to reveal somewhat of the heart of the religious leaders who had had enough of Jesus. And their plot begins to thicken, as it were. And we're given this information for very significant reasons. Because even in this day and age and in this time in which we live, people still continue to plot in many ways against the love of Christ against the work that that Jesus Christ himself did on the cross on our behalf. And sometimes it just reveals our own hearts. I would hope and pray when that happens that we would turn immediately back to Jesus. These things can happen very often very frequently in the days and times in which we do live. There's so much deception. In fact, Jesus himself talked about that deception in his Olivet Discourse, Matthew 24, Mark chapter 13, and Luke 21. That in the last days, in the end of times, there would be that kind of deception saying, I am the Christ, here and there, and wherever we go. But we here today are convinced that there is only one Christ. There's only one Messiah of Israel, and that's Yeshua, Jesus. And so we begin in verse 28, where it says, Then led they Jesus from Caiaphas, unto the Hall of Judgment, which we believe was the Praetorium, where Pontius Pilate would stay occasionally in his very infrequent visits to Jerusalem. And it was early, and that signifies something important to us as well, because they had already had two trials that were illegal because they were held at night. 
But it was early, so they fit in one more quick trial, which we'll talk about in a moment. And so it goes on to say, and they themselves went not into the judgment hall, speaking of the priests and the religious leaders who brought Jesus to Pontius Pilate, lest they should be defiled, but that they might eat the Passover. Pilate then went out unto them and said, What accusation bring ye against this man? They answered and said unto him, If he were not a malefactor, we would not have delivered him up unto thee. And then said Pilate unto them, Take ye him, and judge him according to your law. The Jews therefore said unto him, It is not lawful for us to put any man to death. And then John parenthetically says that the saying of Jesus might be fulfilled, which he spake, signifying what death he should die. So as we begin to look at this last section of chapter 18, it would be good to remember that the Jewish religious leaders who had arrested Jesus in the Garden of Gethsemane had determined to kill Jesus long before this night happened, much less before coming to the light of day. And aside from a few times recorded of certain groups wanting to take him or stone him on the spot, the Apostle John noted the plot following the great miracle that could not be denied by all who were there. When Jesus raised Lazarus from the dead, and I want to take you back to that for just a moment because I want you to go to John chapter 11 and, and, and now this has happened and in verse 45 we'll pick up with some very significant verses that we need to hear and read again. It says in verse 45, Then many of the Jews which came to Mary, the sister of Lazarus, and had seen the things which Jesus did, believed on him. They believed on him because they saw what he had done. All of them who were there knew that Lazarus had been dead for four days. There was no question about that. But because Jesus called out his name after removing the stone and, and Lazarus came forth, well, what were you going to do but believe? But notice in verse 46 it says, but some of them went their ways to the Pharisees and told them what things Jesus had done. Now, you might think that they might have gone over there to say, hey, listen, this is what Jesus did, you know, trying to be witnesses of what Christ did. That may be, but the, the, the fact of the matter is they, they were also probably just spies for these religious leaders. But notice he's, they told him what things Jesus had done. A miracle had taken place. And then gathered the chief priests and the Pharisees a council and said, What do we? For this man doeth many miracles. There's no denying that Jesus did a miracle. 
There's no trying to weigh it whether, well, it could have been, it could have been this, it could have been that. No, they, 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 he did a miracle. That was clear. And they're telling the Pharisees this. He doeth many miracles. If we let him thus alone, they said, all men will believe on him. And the Romans shall come and take away both our place and nation. And that's a rather interesting retort here because you see, they seem to be much more concerned with their own selves. They were concerned with their own positions. They were concerned with their own place. And in effect, they were concerned with their nation only in the fact that they were the religious leaders of this nation. One of them named Caiaphas, being the high priest that same year, said unto them, you know nothing at all, nor consider that it is expedient for us that one man should die for the people and that the whole nation perish not. What a statement Caiaphas makes, but not as if he's speaking really on behalf of God. Yet, in verse 51, it says, This spake he not of himself, but being high priest that year, he prophesied that Jesus should die for that nation. Being the high priest, he was one who could prophesy. And he prophesies, in fact, against the things that he is believing. And notice in verse 52, And not for that nation only, but that also he should gather together in one the children of God that were scattered abroad. And then from that day forth they took counsel together for to put him to death. They did not know what they were doing. When he tells them, you, don't, you know nothing at all, he knew nothing at all. You, do you understand that? And still, because he was a high priest, God used him to give forth a prophecy. That is incredible, isn't it? And at the risk of getting away ahead of myself, one thing that I didn't say much about back when we studied this passage in chapter 11, it had to do with verse 52. <clears throat> the part of Caiaphas's prophecy that, that pertained to the gathering together in one of the children of God that were scattered abroad. Now, since this message is entitled, To This End Was I Born, I wanted to make clear that Jesus coming to this earth to take upon himself flesh for the purpose of being the pure Lamb of God who would be sacrificed not only for his people, the children of Israel, but also for the sins of the whole world. To once and for all take care of the sin issue all of this was fulfillment of Scripture. And I want to take you to Isaiah chapter 49 for just a moment. Because we want that statement to be substantiated. We find in Isaiah 49 verses 5 through 7. And by the way, I'm going to give you a lot of homework to, to do today. Read, your reading is going to begin in Isaiah 49. So you're going to read all of chapter 49 today sometime, all right? And you'll be tested on it next week. So you read all of chapter 49, you know, we'll get, there's another chapter that you're going to have to read. All right. 
That's the old school teacher in me. Okay. Isaiah 49, verses 5 through 7. We'll just read those three verses. And now saith the Lord that formed me from the womb to be his servant, to bring Jacob again to him, though Israel be not gathered, yet shall I be glorious in the eyes of the Lord, and my God shall be my strength. This is a messianic statement. And he said, it is a light thing that thou shouldst be my servant. This is the Father speaking. It is a light thing that thou shouldst be my servant, a servant to raise up the tribes of Jacob and to restore the preserved of Israel. Notice the next phrase. I will also give thee for light, for a light to the Gentiles that thou mayest be my salvation unto the end of the earth. Now, many people believe now that, that the Lord is actually speaking to Israel itself, but it's very hard to substantiate that with the statements that are being made in verse 5 about Israel, not so much to Israel. So he says, I will, get, I will also give thee for a light to the Gentiles, that thou mayest be my salvation unto the end of the earth. Yet there is some truth to the very fact that Israel was raised up to be a light to the Gentiles. We'll talk about that in a moment. But notice verse 7 now. It says, Thus saith the Lord, the Redeemer of Israel, and His Holy One. So now, here we see the Lord and His Holy One, the Father and His Son. We see this kind of language in the Psalms. We see it as well in the book of Genesis. Thus saith the Lord, the Redeemer of Israel, and His Holy One, to him whom man despiseth, notice, to him whom the nation abhorreth, to a servant of rulers, kings shall see and arise, princes shall also, uh, also shall worship because of the Lord that is faithful and the Holy One of Israel, and he shall choose thee. So the text here is very clear, and that is that Israel, which was to be the light to the Gentiles, that's, there's no question about that. God raised them up for that very purpose, that they might be a light to the Gentiles. But Israel, which was to be the light to the Gentiles, cannot and would not ever be that light without her Messiah. Israel cannot be that light without her Messiah, the light of the world. It's the reason why Jesus, in the, in, the, in the Gospel of John, as we studied all of the I am statements of Jesus, one of them was, I am the light of the world. And the Isaiah text is equally significant in this as we see at the very onset of the Gospel of John when John writes in verses 10 through 14, the first chapter, he says, He was, speaking of the Logos, Jesus, He was in the world, and the world was made by Him, and the world knew Him not. He came unto His own, the Jewish people, he came unto his own, and his own received him not. But as many as received him, both Jew and Gentile, to them gave he power to become the sons of God, even to them that believe on his name, which were born not of blood, nor of the will of flesh, nor of the will of man, but of God. And the word was made flesh, and dwelt among us, and we beheld his glory, the glory as of the only begotten of the Father, full of grace and truth. So now we can take a string and tie this passage here in John back over to Isaiah chapter 49, and then swing it back around to John chapter, 18, uh, John chapter 11, 
in the prophecy of Caiaphas when he says what he says about one man dying for the nation and the Lord as well. Gathering together in one the children of God that were scattered abroad, speaking of the Gentiles. Now that was really talking about his first coming. But what about his second coming? What about the second coming of Jesus? Jesus, of course, has promised that second coming. What then? Well, the Apostle Paul makes that clear for us in Philippians 2, verses 9 through 11. When Paul writes, Wherefore God also has highly exalted him, speaking of Jesus, and given him a name which is above every name, that at the name of Yeshua, God is salvation, Jesus, every knee should bow, of things in heaven and things in earth, and things under the earth, <clears throat> and that every tongue should confess that Jesus Christ, that Yeshua HaMashiach, Jesus the Christ, or the Messiah, is Lord to the glory of God the Father. And I bring this up because this ties with the title of this message, which we're going to get to actually next week, when he says, to this end was I born. So to this end was he born. To this end was he born. To come to die on behalf not only of Israel, but for the sins of the whole world. So getting back to our text in John 18, and the happenings of that now early morning, what the Sanhedrin was not allowed to do under Roman law was to execute prisoners. They needed Rome's cooperation, they needed Rome's approval, and in Judea, Rome was one person, the procurator, Pontius Pilate, who just so happened to be in Jerusalem to preserve order during the Passover. Now I say it that way because Pontius Pilate did not like to go to Jerusalem. He didn't like it one bit. History teaches us that Pontius Pilate was a corrupt, domineering, an arrogant imperial governor who ruthlessly hated the Jewish people whom he ruled. And in times of irritation, he freely shed their blood. As we're told in one verse of Luke chapter 13, the very first verse of that chapter, in preparation for Jesus to teach a lesson on repentance. And, and it says there, and Luke sets the stage for that, when he says there were present at that season some that told him of the Galileans whose blood Pilate had mingled with their sacrifices. There were a number of groups within the, the Jewish people, sometimes we call them zealots, that uh, just wanted to oppose Rome at every, at every stop and at every turn. And uh, Pilate uh, just influenced his 
great force upon them, you know. So it, it, it didn't bother him at all to have to kill as many people that opposed him when the time suited him. But Pilate hated visiting Jerusalem, and he only showed up as seldom as, as, as was possible, all because he was accustomed to the pleasures of Rome. And he abhorred Jerusalem's religiousness and an ever-seething air of, of, of revolution. He, he just didn't like it, you know, he just hated it. He enjoyed being over in Caesarea. That's where he was set up over there to enjoy the, the pleasures of Rome. They, they, they didn't have the pleasures in, in Jerusalem, just problems. So as much as he hated the Jews, he also understood something. He understood the need to deal with their leadership, especially during very tenuous situations for the Romans. When you have close to a million people coming into the city of Jerusalem for one of the festivals, especially Passover, and the city is filled with worshipers observing the Passover, sacrificing lambs for their families, as it were. And while understanding the power structures of the Jewish religious leaders and knowing how to use them, Pilate nonetheless revealed a weakness and an indecisiveness that led to compromising actions. We'll see that not only today, but also next week. In effect, his only concern was protecting himself, his position, and Rome. How similar that was to what the Pharisees were doing, to what the high priests or the high priest and the priests were doing, wanting to protect themselves, wanting to protect their positions, and in fact, wanting to protect their place in Israel. I would have to say quite ahead of, of things that both Pontius Pilate and the Jewish religious leaders failed in all three things. But we'll get to that another time. What, the, what about uh, the scruples of the priests and the Sanhedrin? The scruples, uh, what I mean by that is the principles, the, the ethics, the consciences, the, you know, the, the morality of the priests and of the Sanhedrin. You know, what, what, what about that here? Because verse 28 reveals that they had no scruples at all. <laughs> it reveals that they had no, no ethics, no, no principles whatsoever. What it does reveal is that they were in spiritual bondage. Now, I have to say that there are people even in the church today that are under spiritual bondage because they haven't been set free by the very work of the blood of Jesus Christ and the things that Christ has done on, uh, for them on the cross. And they're, they're under bondage to, to the law still. They're, they're, you know, they're, they're very legalistic in a lot of ways. And yet, sometimes their lives don't reflect that. This is something we all ourselves need to have to be very careful about. 
But let's look at verse 28 of John 18 as we start now our, our text and our study here in, this, in these few verses. It says, And led they Jesus from Caiaphas unto the hall of judgment. So they're bringing Jesus, and they take Jesus to the hall of judgment. They put him into the hall of judgment, but they don't go in. Because we're told, and it was early, of course, the sun was rising, the sun was dawning, and they themselves went not into the judgment hall. So they probably gave Jesus over to whoever was guarding the judgment hall or the praetorium, and they said, here, take him into Pilate. And they stayed outside. Why? Well, they were told why. Lest they should be defiled. I have to tell you, John is being very sarcastic here. He says, lest they should be defiled, but that they might eat the Passover. Well did Jesus describe the religious leaders of his own people before all this happened. And it was one of those things that was the, you know, it was the, 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 the you know, the knife in their side, as it were. Before all of these things take place, Matthew 23. By the way, this is the second chapter that you need to read for your homework today. Matthew 23. I'm only going to give you a couple of verses, selected verses here. But read the whole chapter because the whole chapter is about what Jesus is saying about the hypocrisy of the, the Jewish religious leaders. He says, woe unto you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites, you mask wearers. For you are like unto whited sepulchers. In other words, you're just like whitewashed tombs, which indeed appear beautiful outward, but are within full of dead men's bones and of all uncleanness. You know, a lot of times we mention the bones, but we forget that that is an unclean place. Now think about what they were doing. They took Jesus, threw him into the judgment hall, and they said, but we're not going in because we don't want to be defiled. They were already defiled. And even so, he goes on to say, you also outwardly appear righteous unto men. But within you are full of hypocrisy and iniquity, sin. So don't forget to read all of this chapter. So from his mock illegal trial in the middle of the night before Annas, who sought to get information that would implicate Jesus as anti-Roman, an enemy of the state, and worthy of death, to, equally, to an equally illegal Jewish trial before Caiaphas and whatever members of the Sanhedrin they could assemble at that late hour, they eventually do justify a legal trial at the very break of dawn just to condemn Jesus. They justify a legal trial. Why? Because the sun was coming up. You find this not in John, but in Matthew 27, verses 1 and 2, where it says, When the morning was come, all the chief priests and elders of the people took counsel against Jesus to put him to death. And when they had bound him, they led him away and delivered him to Pontius Pilate, the governor. 
John, however, focuses on the accusations before Pilate. Now, this is also very interesting, what we find in these four verses here, 29 through 32. Pilate then went out unto them and said, What accusation bring ye against this man? Stop and think just for a moment. There had, there had to have been some kind of communication from, from, the, from the, the priests to Pontius Pilate for him to be ready for him to receive Jesus and ready for him to come out. And you'll notice that Pilate went out unto them. Again, they did not come in. He comes out to them. Already this is somewhat of a compromise. Already this is showing some kind of a weakness here. But he asked the question, what accusation bring you against this man? They answered and said unto him, if he were not a malefactor, we would not have delivered him up unto thee. And then said Pilate unto them, take ye him and judge him according to your law. The Jews therefore said unto him, it is not lawful for us to put any man to death. That the saying of Jesus might be fulfilled. And again, remember, this is parenthetical. This is something that John is, is adding to the, uh, to the account. He says it, uh, that the saying of Jesus might be fulfilled, which he spake, signifying what death he should die. We'll get to that in a moment. But having already condemned Jesus to death, the religious authorities led the Lord to Pilate so that the Roman governor could examine him and approve their sentence. That's what they wanted here. And for a very good reason. And yet it was Passover, and these religious men had their sacrificial lambs ready at home, and they had rid their homes of leaven, and, and they had done all that they had to do to be ceremonially clean for the Passover. But all of this, so that they could kill the Passover lambs that afternoon, and keep the feast immediately after sunset. Which brings up a quick question. I'm not going to deal with it a whole lot. But uh, some people have said, well, didn't Jesus and his disciples that night before celebrate the Passover supper? And they did. After the supper, of course, they went to the Garden of Gethsemane. Why the next day are they preparing for another Passover supper? What we need to understand is that historically, again, especially uh, Jewish history, there were these great conflicts between the Pharisees and the Sadducees. The Sadducees did not believe the scriptures for the most part. They only held to the first five books. I, I think we've spoken about this before. They only held to the Torah, the first five books of Moses. Of course, the Pharisees believed all of the word of God in a sense. Uh, they held it, of course, in, in, in high esteem. So they had differing ideas as to when Passover was to be celebrated. But if it had been celebrated on the, on the night of the uh, uh, unleavened bread, it, it, it would have been just fine, which is what Jesus did. So if anything, Jesus did uh, the, uh, the Passover supper on the night of the, that the Pharisees would have done it. 
And what we see in the preparation here of these people, and remember this, that the high priest was a, Sad, was, was a Sadducee, and, and so were most of the, the Sanhedrin. So that's why they were gonna do it on the next night. Now that, that should kind of clear that up for at least now. But nonetheless, they certainly didn't want to risk ceremonial defilement by entering a Gentile place of residence, in this case, the Praetorium, where, they would be, where there would be leaven there. But isn't it great that they just went and tossed Jesus into it? So these, these were scrupulous, punctilious, fastidious, meticulous men. You're thinking, what does all that mean? <laughs> I, got, I have to tell you, I was looking up this one word because I was reading a very, very old commentary and it used the word punctilious. And I said, well, let me look that up. And so I looked it up and, it, and punctilious means showing great attention to detail or correct behavior. And it said that these Pharisees, or I should say these uh, uh, priests and all were, were, uh, were punctilious. And so, you know, I looked, uh, I, I looked at all of the synonyms and the synonyms, meticulous, conscientious, diligent, scrupulous, careful, painstaking, rigorous, perfectionist, Methodical, uh, particular, strict, fussy, fastidious, finicky, pedantic, nitpicking, persnickety. Aren't, the words are great, aren't they? I hope that somewhere along the line you learn a, a word that might fit what these guys were like. Well, they were painstaking men. They were perfectionist when it came to their religious duties and to their rituals and ceremonies, except when it came to Jesus. When it came to Jesus, everything was thrown out the window. Not only were they spiritually in bondage, they were spiritually blind as well. Little did they know that Jesus, Yeshua, Hamashiach, Jesus, the Messiah who proved himself by the things that he did, by the things that he said, little did they know that Yeshua was their true Passover lamb. And they were about to kill him in that capacity. How strange that even Caiaphas said, let it be that one man die for the sins of the nation. You know, the Apostle Paul himself would, who, who by the way, had been a Pharisee of the Pharisees, and some consider him to have been a, a member of the Sanhedrin as well. But in 1 Corinthians 5, verses 7 and 8, Paul writes, Purge out therefore the old leaven, that you may be a new lump as you are unleavened, unleavened, for even Christ our Passover is sacrificed for us. So he calls the Messiah, Jesus, our Passover, sacrifice for us. Therefore let us keep the feast not with old leaven, neither with the leaven of malice and wickedness, but with the unleavened bread of sincerity and of truth. 
which of course now is in complete contrast to the way that the scribes and the Pharisees and the Sanhedrin and the priests all did what they did as leavened people. Leaven was a type of sin. So when Pilate went out to them, and again, you know, you see that it says that Pilate will be shown to be going in and out a few times to accommodate the Jewish leaders' religious scruples. You know, he comes in and out, in and out, in and out. We'll see that more next time. When Pilate went out to them seeking to know their accusations against Jesus, they, they responded in sheer sarcasm. They responded in sheer sarcasm to Pilate. They called Jesus, who is the Son of God, they called him a malefactor. That's an interesting word in the, in the Greek. It is the word kakopoios, which, which just literally means a bad doer. I, I, thought you, I bet you thought I was going to say a bad dude. A bad doer, a criminal, an evildoer. That's what they call Jesus. So let's, let's see, what, what bad had he done? What bad had Jesus done? Well, Jesus healed the sick. He raised the dead. He delivered the demon-possessed. He, he taught the truth about the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, like no one else, because he always taught with authority. The authority that could only come from God, that could only come from heaven, that could only come from the throne of God. Because he spoke in the authority of his Father who sent him, who sent his only begotten Son. And throughout his earthly ministry, they searched out his life. They searched out his life to find any kind of flaw whatsoever. And they found not one, not one flaw. And, and, and just consider the hypocrisy of those who would that very same afternoon be looking at their little one-year-old lambs and looking for some kind of flaw on them, something that they, they could not you know, use that animal for whatever reason. And if they found one that was pretty close to being perfect, because what in, in, in this life is perfect anyway, but there you, know, you find something that might be pretty close to perfect, then that's the one that we're going to sacrifice. Jesus was perfect. He was completely and totally without sin. He had never sinned once in his life. He had been tempted. Even before his earthly ministry began, but he was without sin. So in the end, what did they have to do? They were forced to hire false witnesses against Jesus. <coughs> Excuse me. And so when Pilate told them to take Jesus and judge him according to their law, they were taken by surprise because they thought for sure that Pilate would just take their word for it, that their prisoner was worthy of death. And this just forced their hand. This forced their hand. Because they wanted Jesus to be put to death by crucifixion. They wanted this Jesus who claimed to be God to die under the curse of the law. Now, you would think that they determined this? No. 
God determined this. But this was part of their plot. Remember now that that Paul in Galatians 3.13 says, Christ has redeemed us from the curse of the law, being made a curse for us, for it is written, cursed is everyone that hangeth on a tree. Paul was referring to Deuteronomy chapter 21, verses 22 and 23, where there in the law it says, and if a man have, have committed a sin worthy of death, and he be put to death, and thou hang him on a tree. His body shall not remain all night upon the tree, but thou shalt in any wise bury him that day. For he that is hanged is accursed of God, that thy land be not defiled, which the Lord thy God giveth thee for an inheritance. Well, when you begin to look at styles of execution historically, the Romans were very good at crucifying people. They weren't the ones who invented it, by the way. You could go all the way back to the Phoenicians, and some say the Phoenicians and you know, the other groups that came out of them also used to crucify, which would be to take someone and hang them on a tree. Stretch them out, stretching their limbs out in all the directions that they could go. The Romans may have uh, uh, modernized it in some way. When we talk about a tree, we're, we're talking about pretty much a, 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 a trunk of a tree upon which a prisoner, a convict or whatever that is caught and being taken to, to the cross uh, or to the tree is going to be also carrying a crossbar so that the limbs are extended. So, to, you know, to kind of be legalistic and to say, well, you know, as some non-Christian cults will say, well, he had, Jesus was hanging on a tree, not on a cross, you know, that's nitpicking things. You have to understand his, historically what a, a tree trunk represented. It was the place where you would hang and crucify someone. All of that aside, the point is that that person hanged is accursed of God. And it makes you wonder about the things that Jesus cried from the cross that day. Eli, Eli, lama sabachthani. My God, my God, why hast thou forsaken me? It's part of, of fulfilling the scripture. That Jesus became a curse for us because he took upon himself your sins and mine. And the people were to fear God when someone had to be executed that way because if they didn't execute him that way, then the land would become defiled. Well, how defiled was the land? some 40 years later after the 
the crucifixion of Jesus. That the Romans came down upon Jerusalem and the diaspora took place and all the Jews were scattered throughout the world, still part of what was necessary. But the land was defiled for so many years until 1948. As for another time. It's quite interesting that the Jews would cite Roman law when it suited them and their purposes. Oh, we cannot execute anyone. Well, let me, let me mention stoning because stoning was something that they were only allowed to do and sometimes the Romans allowed them to do that. If you remember in Acts chapter seven that a person named Stephen who was a deacon in the church was stoned by the Jews. And by the way, Saul of Tarsus was there approving it and, and, and uh, of course Saul became Paul. But it's, it is quite interesting that the Jews would cite Roman law when it suited them and their purposes, but Pilate was, not at all, you know, Pilate was not at all anxious to get involved in a Jewish court case, especially at Passover. Jesus was causing problems for the Jews. But if the Jews alone judged Jesus and found him guilty, he would have been killed by stoning. And the Lord God had determined that the Son of God would not be stoned but crucified. Now again, that's why I said it was determined by God, the Father himself. All that said, the religious leaders had forgotten that very important prophecy which they were now helping to bring to pass. You go back to verse 32 of our text, it says that the saying of Jesus might be fulfilled which he spake, signifying what death he should die. What saying was that? Let me remind you, John 3 verse 14. In John 3, verse 14, it says, And Jesus said, And as Moses lifted up the serpent in the wilderness, even so must the Son of Man be lifted up. Now you go back to the time of the wilderness, you go back to the time of Moses and the children of Israel in the wilderness, and, and there was that, that period of time when they were going through the wilderness and you know, not trusting God, murmuring and complaining and whatnot, that serpents were coming out and, 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 and biting them and killing them. Moses went to the Lord, and then the Lord says, take that bronze serpent and lift it up. The bronze serpent representing death and, 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 and the curse, as it were. But if you lift it up and everyone looks at it in faith, trusting that God will do what he says, if you look at it, you'll be healed. And that's what... Jesus was using and as, as an example. As Moses lifted up the serpent in the wilderness, even so must the Son of Man be lifted up. The one who would become the curse for his very own people to take upon himself their sins. John 8, verse 28, Then said Jesus unto them, When you have lifted up the Son of Man, and again, when you think of crucifixion, what did they have to do? They had to lift him up onto the trunk of that tree. When you have lifted up the Son of Man, then shall you know that I am He, and that I do nothing of myself, but as my Father hath taught me, I speak these things. Go to John chapter 12, verses 32 and 33, where Jesus said, And I, if I be lifted up from the earth, will draw all men unto me. This he said, signifying what death he should die. 
And time and time again, and we talked about this very recently, about the three times that Jesus said to his disciples, I'm going to be arrested, I'm going to be taken and tried, and I'm going to be crucified, I will die, I'll be buried, but on the third day I'll rise again from the dead. It was very clear to tell them, I will be crucified. So, how many times does Jesus have to say something for it to be true? Really, only once, right? This was much more than once. And again, it must be said that the whole incident, everything that was taking place that morning, was sovereignly overruled by God. Well, in, in, in the sense of what, you know, they, they, they wanted Jesus to die in the worst possible way. But whatever would have led them to do anything else, because remember how many times they wanted to stone Jesus, and those, you know, they never got to. Why? Because it wasn't time and it wasn't the way. So it was certainly validated and substantiated by the Hebrew prophets that Jesus himself would die on a cross. Psalm 22, verses 14 through 16. David here gives forth a prophecy of Jesus on a cross. When he says, I am poured out like water, and all my bones are out of joint. My heart is like wax. It is melted in the midst of my bowels. My strength is dried up like a potsherd, and my tongue cleaveth to my jaws. And thou hast brought me into the dust of death, for dogs have compassed me. The assembly of the wicked have enclosed me. They pierced my hands and my feet. Prophetically, that was not the way Jesus, or I should say that was not the way the earlier cultures had crucified. But the Romans did. The Romans did. They pierced his hands. And his feet, and in Zechariah chapter 12, verse 10. And I will pour upon the house of David and upon the inhabitants of Jerusalem the spirit of grace and of supplications, and they shall look upon me whom they have pierced. This is now when Jesus will come again. How are they going to recognize that it is Yeshua? Because they will see the marks upon his wrists and hands, the marks on his feet. They shall look upon me whom they have pierced, and they shall mourn for him as one mourneth for his only son, and shall be in bitterness for him as one that is in bitterness for his firstborn. And so as we prepare to close this session of our study of chapter 18, I want you to consider three accusations. Three accusations that had been made against Jesus. Going to lead us into the rest of this particular chapter, but, but primarily for another reason, and I'll, I'll share this as we go. Luke 23 in verses 1 and 2. It says, And the whole multitude of them arose 
and led him unto Pilate. And they began to accuse him, saying, We found this fellow perverting the nation. That's one accusation. Perverting the nation and forbidding to give tribute to Caesar, saying that he himself is Christ a king. Now, you would think that was only one other accusation. No, there's two accusations there. One is perverting the nation. The second is forbidding to give tribute to Caesar. But the greater accusation is the third, saying that he himself is Messiah, the, a king. The charges were completely unsupportable, by the way. Jesus had not perverted or subverted the nation. In fact, he had blessed the nation of Israel and brought them a renewed hope because he gave them the truth. And this is why he came for to this end was I born. For this cause came I into the world, as we shall see in verse 37 later, that I should bear witness unto the truth. He blessed the nation of Israel and brought them a renewed hope because he brought them the truth. The truth that would go way beyond the ceremony, way beyond the ritual way beyond the sacrifice because he would become the sacrifice for his very own people. And as for the charge of opposing pay, paying tribute to Caesar, Jesus actually taught just the opposite, didn't he? You all remember when Jesus said in Matthew 22, verse 21, render unto Caesar the things which are Caesar's and unto God the things that are God's. So Jesus never taught the people to oppose paying tribute to Caesar. In fact, when, they, when, the, when the disciples needed to pay the taxes, you know, what did Jesus say? He said, go and go fish. They weren't playing a card game. He said, go fish. They went and brought in a fish that had their taxes inside of his mouth. So you having problems with your taxes? Go fish. Well, no, I mean, it's, you're not going to find a check in there or whatever, but, well, maybe you will. I don't know. Who knows? The fact is, Jesus didn't teach that. So you see already there, he's being, he's being set up by false accusation. And lastly, Jesus did claim to be king, but not in a political sense. Because even his disciples didn't understand fully those truths until after the resurrection. Remember when Jesus is going into the city of Jerusalem on, a donk, on the foal of a donkey? Uh, you know, Palm Sunday, we, we call it. But, but there he goes into the, 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 the very beginning of that week of, of Passover. And he's going in and the people are laying palm leaves out before him. And he's riding there. And people are waving the palms and they're saying, Hosanna in the highest, blessed is he who cometh in the name of the Lord. They thought, here he is. Here's our victor. Here is the one who's going to lead us against these Romans. And even the disciples got into that very same thing. But they should have known better. They should have known.
It's what Jesus will tell Pilate next, in our next study, but you can read it on. You can read on. He said, my kingdom is not of this world. My kingdom is not of this world. But what is even more significant is that while Pontius Pilate showed indecisiveness and a fear of his crowd, he grew more afraid of his prisoner. He was more afraid of Jesus. Could be that his wife had something to do with that. We'll talk about that next time. But at least three times in the Gospels, he announced that Jesus was not guilty of any crime. Now think, now think about that. He announces three times at least that Jesus was not guilty of anything, and yet he refused to release Jesus. But that was always in the determined counsel of God the Father. That's why Jesus came. Jesus knew from the very moment that he came to this earth that he came for one reason. He came to die for the sins of men. On the day that the Holy Spirit came upon the church on Pentecost, in Acts chapter 2, in that upper room, after all of that took place, that Peter would be led by God to speak to thousands of Jewish men that were there celebrating Pentecost. We're told in Acts 2, verses 22 through 24, he said, you men of Israel, hear these words. Jesus of Nazareth, a man approved of God among you by miracles and wonders and signs which God did by him in the midst of you, as you yourselves also know, him, and here it is, get this, him being delivered by the determinate counsel and foreknowledge of God. Now this is Peter the fisherman, but don't forget he is now filled with the Holy Spirit. He is now being led by the Holy Spirit. He's now being directed by the Spirit of God. He is now God-breathed to say the things that he's saying, and he says, being delivered by the determinate counsel and foreknowledge of God, you have taken and by wicked hands have crucified and slain, whom God has raised up, having loosed the pains of death, because it was not possible that he should be holden of it. There is no way that death could ever hold Jesus in the grave. There is no way that any tomb of any kind, of any material, could ever hold Jesus in a grave. Jesus was bound, determined, and in fact, ready to rise from the dead. And he did so for you and for me. And what Paul says when he says, if you will confess with your mouth the Lord Jesus and believe in your heart that he was raised from the dead, you shall be saved. Salvation was in his very name.
Yehoshua, Yeshua, God is salvation. So was Jesus a malefactor? Was he a bad doer? Was he an evil doer? Was he a criminal? Later on, when Peter was speaking to Cornelius and his household, he said this. He said how, uh, Acts 10, verse 38, how God anointed Jesus of Nazareth with the Holy Ghost and with power, who went about doing good. Everything Jesus did was good. And healing all that were oppressed of the devil, for God was with him. And we are witnesses of all things which he did, both in the land of the Jews and in Jerusalem, whom they slew and hanged on a tree. You won't see it up here, but when you read on in Acts chapter 10 there, it says, Him God raised up the third day and showed Him openly, not to all the people, but unto witnesses chosen before of God, even to us who did eat and drink with Him after He rose from the dead. And He commanded us to preach unto the people and to testify that it is He which was ordained of God to be the judge of the quick or the living and the dead. To Him give all the prophets witness that through His name, through His name, whosoever believeth in Him shall receive remission or forgiveness of sins. To this end was Jesus born. To this end, there's still more to come. You got to come back next week because there's a lot more that needs to be said and a lot more that needs to be grasped. Suffice it to say that unless you know Jesus Christ and know him personally, unless you receive him and accept the truth about him, there's no opportunity for salvation. And Jesus said, come unto me, all you that labor and are heavy laden. That's what the world does to people. The world lays heavy burdens on us. Why? Because the world, the flesh, and the devil all work in concert against the things of God and against the people of God. So Jesus said, come unto me, all you that labor and are heavy laden, and I'll give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn of me, for I am meek and lowly in heart, and you shall find rest for your souls. For my yoke is easy. My burden is light. And don't forget this one other thing, which you hear every time you come. Jesus said, I'm coming again. He's alive. And he's ready to come when the Father sends him. Will you be ready when he comes? I hope and pray you will.